I'm Sharon Heaney, and I will be reading scripture this morning. 1 Kings 17, 8 to 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zapeth in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zapeth. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord, spoken by Elijah. Luke 9, verses 18 to 20. Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Thank you, Sharon, for reading the word of the Lord to us this morning. And I want to welcome everybody back to the story. Uh, the story, if you see these posters along the wall, you see that we've been on a bit of a journey as a church. Every week we put up a new poster and we share a little bit more of God's continuing story from the Bible, from the book of Genesis all the way to the Revelation. And where we're at in this story now is we're still following the history of the family of Abraham. Let's see, where's Abraham? That second picture, the brown one with the knife, that starts the story of the family of Abraham who become later on known as the Israelites, and we would say today as the Jewish people. Um, so we've been following their story. God makes a promise to Abraham that through his descendants that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And God is intent on keeping this promise, uh, but there's lots of twists and turns along the way. And um, at this point in the story, his descendants are doing everything but cooperating with God's plan. 
Things have gotten so bad that the nation was split into two. Look at the poster from last week. You can see the crack in the ground on either side there, that yellow poster. And uh, the nation has been split into two. There's a southern kingdom called Judah, and it's two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then there's a northern kingdom called Israel, um, and uh, it is uh, the nation is split, and the hearts of the people have turned away from God to worship idols. So... Today I get to give you a quick snapshot of the northern kingdom of Israel, and, uh, and we're going to walk through one guy's story. Um, the, over the course of 200 years, God sends nine messengers, uh, prophets of God, to 19 uh, different kings of Israel, and they're called to speak for God and to call Israel back to God. And... Um, in your reading this week, if you read, already read what we're reading together, if you don't have, by the way, if you don't have a copy of The Story, we have that physical book, hardcover, to give to you for free this morning. If you don't have one and you want to continue with this journey with us, we'll get, we'd, we'd be glad to gift you with one of those this morning. But in the story, this week you would have read about four of those nine, um, some of the comments from four of those nine um, prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, and Amos. The sad thing about these nine is that none of them are really effective. I mean, they're obedient to God, but the response they get from Israel is pretty poor. There's occasional little bursts of good response, but it doesn't last long, and there really is no effective turning of the nation back to God. In fact, the only of the nine that really has a great response doesn't speak to Israel. His name's Jonah. He goes to Nineveh. They have a full-on revival turned back to God, but Israel, uh, there's very little response. So I'd love to tell you about all the characters that this one chapter that I'm in uh, encompasses. There's Elisha, Elijah's successor. He asked for a double portion of God's spirit, and he got it. And he went on to do twice as many miracles as Elijah, his mentor, did. And then there's Gehazi, who serves Elisha, who had a front row seat to a lot of those miracles, but he ran after money instead of God, and he paid the price. I'd love to tell you his story. Or, or Obadiah. I'd love to tell you about the, the civil servant who works for evil King Ahab, but was a double agent for God. It's a great story. It involves horses. You'd love it. But I can't tell you this morning. And, of course, Ahab. I just mentioned him. He's the new gold standard for evil kings. Up until that point, Jeroboam was the standard. You measured, he was evil, and they'd measure them against Jeroboam. But when Ahab came along, it was a new standard. They just said from then on, they said, was he as evil as Ahab? Because he's the worst. And that's not the worst of it, because he was outshone in evil by his wife, Jezebel. Maybe you've heard that name before. But Jezebel is the Cruella de Vil of the Old Testament. I wish I could talk more about her. But I'm not going to. And what about Hosea? Let me give you just a tiny bit of Hosea. Hosea was one of the prophets. His, he first acted out what he would tell. And by acting out, I meant all in acting out. God called him to be a prophet for him. And part of his job was to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him. That was his role. I want you to marry this woman. Her name was Gomer. That hasn't been used a lot as a children's name since. Sort of Jezebel and Gomer have sort of fallen on, on hard times. But he married Gomer, and she was a prostitute, and she was unfaithful to him. And that was God's plan. Can you believe that? 
That was part of God's plan, that she would be unfaithful to him and that he would still love her and pursue her and give her a second chance. And in fact, he'd go all the way to paying large sums of money to get his wife back because she got into real trouble when she was unfaithful. And it's a beautiful picture of God's love for the Jewish people, God's love for Israel, but not just Israel. It's God's love for the world. God's love for you and me, that no matter how far we stray from God, no matter how unfaithful we are to God, that he has a plan to redeem us, to bring us back. And of course, it's a foreshadowing, just like the whole Old Testament. It's a foreshadowing of the story of Jesus, that Jesus is willing to pay an enormous price to bring you and, back, you and I back into relationship with him. So I'd love to go at great length and talk about the story of Hosea, but today I'm going to spend our time with the prophet Elijah. But before I do, let me just reinforce what Kurt has already said so well. This prayer passport, uh, if you have one in your bulletin, just pull it out right now. Whoosh, pull it out. Wave it at me. Let me know. Thank you. I love that sound. Okay. On the one side, basically, it's a little bit of a just make your own schedule. When are you going to pray, Right? Praying on your own is fantastic. Praying with others is also important. And so when are you going to pray with us? Maybe noon, maybe seven. Look at the, the, the opportunities for you to pray throughout this week uh, with others here at the church in our prayer room. But then flip it over. Tonight at our prayer summit, we're going to walk you through the other side of this card. Uh, we're going to walk you through uh, reflecting spiritually on last year. We're going to walk you through your big ask your big ask, your one big request of God for 2020. I've already done this exercise myself. I went through this process where I went through all the different things I could have asked God for this year and got it down to one. Got it down to one big thing. You know when the Bible says about pray without ceasing? That means you can pray all day. You don't have to pray, uh, you know, only in certain slots, but you can pray all day. This is the one thing I keep coming back to. Again and again, when I pray without ceasing, when I pray in a little, you know, seconds or minutes throughout my day, I keep coming back to my one big ask for the year. Do you know what yours is yet? We'll help you tonight fine-tune your prayer life by giving you some time and, and leading you through a process of getting down to what's the one big thing. And then finally, there's a, it says my fresh dedication. So if you bring this card out tonight, well, we'll have a fresh stack as well. But even if you forget it at home, We'll walk you through this process because we believe that this week of prayer is meant to be significant in the life of our church, also in your life, and uh, that 2020 is meant to be a significant year for you spiritually. Hopefully the best one yet. Okay? So part of the point of the chapter that we're in, in the story, or, well, one of the biggest points is that God is trying to get a hold of Israel. He's trying to get their attention. And that's why he sends these nine prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and so God is speaking. Will they listen? Will they respond? Will they do what he, he asks them to do? Will they come back to him? Will they renew their commitment to him? That's the story, right? That's the story that we're dealing with right now. But it's our story too. Will we answer? Will we respond? God is still speaking today. Will we listen or will we ignore his message like the Israelites did? God's speaking through the Bible. He's speaking through his Holy Spirit to us. What is God saying to you today? Uh, last week I was, uh, you know, that shaking hand time we just did and going around and greeting people. I went up one aisle and I ran into somebody and I hadn't seen them for a while. And I said, hey, how are you doing? I haven't seen you for a while. What's up? And they said, in three years I'm going to retire. I said, wow, that's awesome. Then what? And they said, well, 
I don't know. And that's why I'm going to the Hearing God seminar. <laughs> and I was like, bingo, bingo. And do any of you feel the same way? You're like, I don't know what's next. Or I don't know. I need some, I need some wisdom. I need some guidance. I need some direction. In James, it says, it says, if you lack that, ask God. He likes to give it, not in a tiny measure, but he likes to give it in big Fat doses. He likes to give it liberally is what, the, what the, the text says. So God is speaking. Are you listening? Would it be easy for him to get your attention or really hard? Are you giving him your attention? And then second, God is listening. Are you speaking? Is there some great big faith-filled request that you need to bring before him? The scripture says you have not because you ask not. Can you imagine the tragedy of going through your life not asking God great big faith-filled requests and so you don't receive the answer? Well, that's what this week is really focusing in on, is helping us to ask so we can receive, but also to listen so that we can be directed. All right, the story of Elijah. Elijah's life is a tug of war between fear and faith, which is a great reflection of our lives too. I experience this all the time. Fear, faith, fear, faith, fear, faith. Mountaintop highs of faith. Deep, low valleys of fear. Um, maybe that's been your week. It was my week. What do you mean faith and fear? What are those? I'm going to give simple definitions for, for this morning. Faith says you can trust God. That's what faith says. You can trust God. And fear says you cannot trust God. You can trust God or you cannot trust God. Faith and fear. And I think there's some, I'm going to read some of uh, a lot of Elijah's story here this morning. And I think there's some things we can learn from his story to successfully handle whatever life is throwing at us. And um, ultimately, I hope that we can learn some things from Elijah's stories that help us learn how to respond more with faith and less with fear. So let's begin. I'll just say the first point and then I'll start to read. Have faith when you feel uncertain. Have faith when you feel uncertain. Elijah faces three situations in 1 Kings 17 which were filled to the brim with uncertainty. And the first one, let's just read it. It said, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, so he's coming to confront the most evil king Israel's ever had, married to an even more evil woman, his wife Jezebel. He comes to Elijah and he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel's live, Lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. This is the judgment of God on a nation that had rejected him. And so he's delivered this message to the king. Then the word of God, so that was the word of God through Elijah to Ahab. Then the word of God came to Elijah for his own life. Listen to it. Leave here. <laughs> a better translation would be run. You don't come up to the most evil king Israel's ever have had, who's married to an even more evil woman, and just say, hey, guess what? Because you're, you're doing things wrong, there's going to be no rain for a few years. You usually don't live after that. You usually die. So God gives them very specific instructions. Run. Leave here. Turn eastward and hide. So run and hide. If God ever tells you run and hide, you know it's serious. 
right? You might feel run and hide in your life. This is just practical advice. God's not telling him to, to be terribly afraid. He's just saying there's an urgency about your actions right now, Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. So God gives him a hiding, a hideout, a place to go, a way to stay safe, but he has to obey. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Whoa, this is crazy cool. And so he did what the Lord had told him. Very key, he obeyed. And he went to the Carethree Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Have faith when we feel uncertain. When do you feel uncertain? When you have to run for your life, you feel uncertain. When you have to run for your life, when you have to hide to, to stay alive, you feel uncertain. And so... Elijah trusted God and did exactly what God said. And so he fulfilled his dangerous assignment of of speaking to the king, which was surely going to end in death, and God provided a way for him to to live and see another day. So have faith when we feel uncertain. What's the second one? Some day later, sometimes later, the brook dried up. (laughs) Have you ever had that? The thing you were depending on went away? You're like, okay, life is working for me. It was a little uncertain, but I've got this brook. I've got this supply of fresh water. And whoa, what happened? And we experience that in our lives too, don't we? This is my supply. This is the thing. Even if God gave it to you, suddenly it's gone. And you're like, whoa, what am I going to do now? Well, that's what Elijah experienced. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Of course, he prophesied that. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. And, of course, this is the passage that Sharon read to us. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Hey, what's your supply like? What's your supply line in life? You know, kind of what's your support level? Elijah, I've directed a widow to supply you with food. Now, as he's going there, I bet he's thinking, a wealthy widow, right? A wealthy widow, right? Steak, lobster, what am I going to be eating? What's it going to be like? What's her palatial house going to be like? So he goes. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, would you bring me a little water in a jar? So I may have a drink. So he must have known this is the one. And as she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied. I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home to make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Oh, my source of supply is not that great. It's actually pretty minimal. So Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Remember, we're fighting between faith and fear, the tug of war inside. The natural enemy of faith is fear, and thankfully the natural enemy of fear is faith. So go home and do what you have said, but first make a small loaf for me. This would be a huge step of faith for her, also for him to even ask it. Make a a small loaf for a bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son, which doesn't make sense. That's not logical. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord says rain on the land. Have you notice how much in this story that the word of the Lord comes, the word of the Lord comes, the word of the Lord comes. All these crazy things are happening at the word of the Lord. 
All these amazing things happened. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Some of you here at Hillcrest have amazing stories of God's provision. And you can testify to the fact that he really can do a lot with a little. He really can provide. He really is good. So he had to trust God when, uh, when he had to run for his life. He had to have faith in the uncertainty of having, depending on a widow to supply his needs. And then here's the last one. Elijah had to trust God to restore the widow's son to life. And I'll read it to you. Sometime later, the son of the woman was, who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, Why do you, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? This is what grief sounds like. Do you sound like this? When the bottom of your life falls out? Or when you feel like it is? Or there's a great threat in your life? Is there panic? I know there is in my voice sometimes. Fear and faith, the tug of war. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself up on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So all these stories have uncertainty in them. And maybe just like Tammy was sharing in our worship set, maybe you've been facing circumstances that are are, are, are presenting you with a challenge. Are you going to see those circumstances and take the path of fear? Or are you seeing the circumstances and taking the path of faith, right? Are you saying like the, what is armies, the seals or whatever, you know, good times, good times. God's got this. God's sovereign. Even this is not beyond his control. Or are you saying all is lost? God's word is the same for you as it is for Elijah. I will provide Trust me. That's what God's saying to you. He might use ravens. He might use a jar of oil. There might need to be a healing. But trust me. You know, in the New Testament, it says, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed in in James, the book of James, it talks about this. He prayed, and it didn't rain for three years, and then prayed again later, and it did rain. That's, you know, the bookends of the story. But basically, that point is being made in the book of James to say that the prayer of a person who is in line with God is powerful. This is a week of prayer and fasting. Uh, You want to see the hand of God move? It requires people to ask, to come before God and just say, say, and asking for things that, you know, that are in God's will, right? It's not like God's... You can't twist his arm to do something evil or you can't twist his arm to do something that God's completely unwilling to do. But I mean things that are, are, are good and godly, and ask. 
Our prayers are powerful and effective. When they're aligned with God, when we're aligned with God, when we come uh, close to him, they're powerful and effective in our lives. And the illustration that James uses to tell us that is the story of Elijah. He's just a man. He's just a man like you, like you. So don't get thinking that this is all was so much beyond us. I'll ne- I can never experience God's provision in, in, in my life. No. Let me give you five quick lessons about God's provision just for this chunk. God's provision is enough for the day, right? Remember what Jesus taught, taught his disciples to pray? Give us this day our monthly bread. Remember that? No, no, it's our daily bread. No, give us this day our yearly bread. No, no, it's our daily bread. Right? Give us our daily bread. Or give us raven food. Or angel cake. Uh, well, what's that angel cake? Angel food cake, whatever. Give us whatever it is. Give us jars of oil that don't run dry. Give us, give us a little bit of flour that keeps on keeping on. Give us our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. I've tried to make it my habit this year to every day say the Lord's Prayer. It's something, you know, I would have said lots when I was a kid, but... Now I'm trying to use it every day. And when I get to that part, it's helpful just to really think, what is my daily bread? What is the provision I need from God today? And am I trusting him to be my provider or am I thinking I'm the great provider? It changes my perspective. So it's enough for the day. God's provision is enough for the day. God's provision comes from unexpected sources or or through unexpected ways, right? Ravens and jars of oil, those are unexpected. But when you pray for God to provide, sometimes we pray uh, with greater confidence because we've already figured out the plan, right? Oh, I know how it's going to happen, so I'll pray. So it's sort of like this is a freebie for God, right? He doesn't actually have to provide because I've already got to figure it out. Give me my daily bread. I already know it's in the cupboard, right? I got it. But it's not really the level of faith that's required when you don't got it. And you say, Lord, will you provide for me today? Would you provide my daily bread? And I can't map out for you how you're going to do it. But I know you can. So if you want to bring unexpected means to bear in this situation, um, I'm open to that because, well, you're God and I'm not. The third thing about God's provision is it's enough to meet your needs and to share with others. I didn't write it in, I didn't write it in my notes, but it's 1 Timothy 6, 17, and I didn't read the whole thing, but it basically says, don't hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God, who gives us all good things, basically. And then it talks about, it, oh, look at there, it's up there. Oh, I didn't put it in my notes, and they get it up. You guys are, that's impressive. These tech guys are amazing. Let me read it. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Okay? So God richly provides for us. I think it's in the context. I won't try to guess if it's in 18 or 19, but in the next couple of verses, I think it talks about basically gives us enough so we can share, right? So we can be part of giving that. So God will, that's what happened with the widow. That's what happened with the widow, Right? God's provision for Elijah meant God's provision for the widow. God's provision for you means God's provision for others. I hope you get that. When God is generous to you, there's a pay it forward element in it. Freely you have received, freely give. Right? Who should be the most generous people in the world? Christians. Why? Because we've experienced the most generosity in the world. Really? You say, I'm not sure if I have. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the greatest generosity the world has ever known. If you've been a recipient of it, freely give. Because you've been given to more than anyone else. And you hope for people to also have what you have. So, God's provision is enough to meet your needs and to share with others. God's provision requires faith and obedience, right? The widow did what Elijah said. Elijah did what God said. That's what, what uh, was essential to see God's provision. It requires faith and obedience to see God's provision. So you might have to do something. Say, well, I want God to provide me a job. And then you might feel this nudge of the Holy Spirit to make a resume and apply for jobs. Yeah. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right? You act along with your faith. Um, or you act along with your prayers, right? My mom taught me that. She said, let's pray for something. Oh, I need this. We prayed for it. And then she said, now act along with your prayers. Right? Like, don't try to make it as impossible as you possibly can. Now, this is going to sound contradictory to what we'll read in a little bit. But act along with your prayers. Act along with your prayers. It requires faith and obedience. And finally, God's provision inspires a deeper faith in God. Right? That's what the widow said at the end. Now I know that you are a man of God. She'd taken several steps of faith through our story to get to this proclamation. And I know in my life there's been several steps where I was like, I know God can do this intellectually, but I've never experienced it. But then when I experienced it, I was like, oh, it was a deeper uh, level of faith in my life. I was like, oh, God can provide. Oh, God can lead. Oh, God can direct. Oh, God does know my address. He does know my name. He knows where I live. He knows what I'm going through. And he can speak to that situation. I mean, I, before I could write it on a, a test paper because I knew, read it in the Bible. But as you walk with God, then it's not just test paper answers anymore. Then it's experience, and that's different. That's different. And so you go from saying, I know the Bible says this is about God, so I'm going to trust in it. And you do. But then you go to experiencing the reality of that, and you go, oh, okay. Now it's just so much more real in my life. And it is. So have faith when you feel uncertain. But here's the other one. Have faith when you feel outnumbered. Do you ever feel outnumbered as a Christian? You ever feel like there's antagonism towards God around you in your, your situation? And antagonism towards God sometimes can make us, uh, um, it'll tempt us towards feeling fear. Or maybe it just causes us to feel fear in our lives, not faith. And uh, I think... Christians have always been outnumbered. I think it's actually strange. Some people say, oh, I, I wish for the good old days when we were a Christian nation or a Christian North America or whatever those. And, and it's lots of arguments about what it was like back then. And I didn't live back then, so I can't tell you with any authority what it was like. But you know what? If it was a Christian nation, it's an aberration. I, what that means is that's not the norm. That's not been the norm. If you look at all the history since Jesus came and died till now, the norm has been that Christians are outnumbered. That's the norm. I think the Bible is written to that norm. That you're outnumbered. Always outnumbered. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. 
Because there's a math in God that's, that's different, right? Elijah, he faces off against 450 prophets of Baal. And, and there's also 400 other prophets, I think, of Asherah as well. But, so there's, there's at least 850 prophets, false prophets, who are sort of like holy men for, the, for evil. So they're not holy. They're unholy men, I guess. Whatever. But there's 850 to 1. He's outnumbered. He's outnumbered. And at least on that hill, we're going to read about it in a second, it's at least 450 to 1. But it doesn't matter because the math in God is this. God plus 1 equals majority. It's simple math. Even I could do it. God plus 1 is a majority. It doesn't mean that you're meant to be a solo character in every story. That's our individualistic matrix. I think the the ideal is that you do partner with the body of Christ. You do partner with other Christians. We're made for that, by the way. We're all designed that way. What God gives you may be for me. What God gives me may be for you. And in fact, if we're in close proximity to each other quite a bit, that's almost a guarantee. That God will download things to me for you and God will download things to you for me. 100% guarantee if we're in close proximity over a long period of time, that's how it's going to work. Because he made it for it to work that way. But if you find yourself alone, just you, don't despair. God plus one is a majority. So Ahab sent word through all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. There's a challenge afoot. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. By the way, he's not 100% accurate and he's the only one left. Let me just throw that out there. But he's speaking passionately, and the rest of what he says is very truthful. <laughs> but, I'm the only, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on wood, and, and, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but I won't set fire to it. And then you'll call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of my, on the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. A very simple test. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, since there's so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around, at, around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. 
With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid, the wood, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Which they did. And then he said, do it again. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered it. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And it also licked up all the water in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. When you feel outnumbered, just remember, in the end, the good guys win. No, it's not just some platitude. It's actually what the Bible is teaching. It's saying that... Uh, God is going to come. You know, when God came the first, when Jesus comes the first time in the incarnation, he comes again to in, invite people to come into relationship with him. We're sort of living in that time. We're living in that time where Jesus doesn't come in judgment. He comes with great mercy, right? Remember how he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? A donkey is a sign that the, the king is coming in peace, Right? There's no fight here. There's no, you know, he's coming. Even though there's a spiritual war going on, he's not at war with you and me. He's actually in, in, in eliciting us to stop being against him and to, uh, and to ally with him, right? That he's willing to be for us and not against us. That that opportunity is available to us. But the day is coming when he will come on a war horse. The day of judgment is coming in the future where Jesus will come and the book of Revelation describes this. And it's not a war that's, that's a really pitched battle and who's going to win. It's, it's very one-sided because he has all power in heaven and earth and when he comes, he conquers. So the opportunity to receive Jesus as though Jesus coming on a donkey uh, ready to receive us in relationship is now. And there's a day coming uh, where that period of time will end. And he'll come as a conquering king. Well, that's the truth of in the end, the good guys win. Jesus is going to win. Right? And even, like, this is for me is a great uh, comfort to me. Sometimes I think the bad guys are winning. And I got to just keep reminding myself, it's, this, is, this is a battle, not the whole war. Right? But if it seems like the bad guys are winning, it, they're winning the battle. They're not winning the war. The war has been predetermined in its end outcome. And whether I experience uh, great hurts or injustices or, 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 or persecution or difficult things in this life, I know what I have in the life to come. I know what I have with Jesus because he has sent his son. He gave his son so that I could have eternal life. And it's true for all of us, for any of us who believe on him that we can have eternal life with God. And so that gives me great comfort in my present life. I can, just like Tammy was saying, good times, good times. <laughs> when it's not good times. When it's difficult. Because of faith. Because of faith in what God has already done for me. 
I'm an heir of eternal life because of Christ, because of what Jesus has done for me. He's taken my sin on him, nailed to the cross, and given me his righteousness. That's a done deal already in my life. Not because I earned it, not because I deserved it. I didn't, and I didn't. But because he gave it as a free gift, and I, I believed and I received, and then I became. <laughs> I believed in what he's done for me, that that's the absolute essential that everybody needs for their life. That's the TSN turning point everyone needs spiritually in their lives is to believe in what Jesus has done for them. Stop trusting in your own good works. Man, I, the, this has been sweet to me in the last number of days. I've just, every time I think of it, I'm so glad that God has called me to stop thinking of myself as a good person and start thinking of myself as a forgiven person. That has been a nice, wonderful, and it's, it's building in me. I don't even know where it's going to. I just know it's getting greater and greater in me is that my life is not about Steve the good person. Eh, I know it's not true but Steve, the forgiven person. That's what he's calling all of you to become and actually to re-identify as. Not as a person who's good on your own. That's religion, right? I'm going to be good and I'm going to earn my way with God and I'm going to impress him with all my good works. The Bible says you can't. There's none righteous, no, not one. If you add up all our good works, it's not enough. It doesn't add up to God's level of perfection, his standard of perfection. But one, one did live up to the level of perfection, and that's Jesus. And so he went to the cross and became that perfect sacrifice for us so that level of perfection could be given to us. And that's what I'm trusting in. That's what I'm trusting in. That doesn't mean you don't try to be good, but you're good out of gratitude. You're good out of a response to someone who is perfect for you. It's a radical difference. Man, I just I feel like I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to squeeze the evil of religion out of people <laughs> and inject the truth of the gospel. Because religion is killing us. It is killing us. And I see this all the time. I see this all the time. I'm sitting with people in counseling, and I'm, I'm trying to help them to get to some sort of goal in their life, whether it's to forgive somebody or, or you know, uh, to rid them of anxiety and fear and stuff like that. And I just realize religion is killing you right now. You have to somehow prop up inside of yourself because you believe that your right standing with God depends on your good works and your behavior, that you can earn your way with God. Abandon that. Abandon that. Throw that in the garbage bin. Embrace the fact that he did everything for you. Why don't we want to abandon that? Because we want to be the hero of our lives. We want to be the center of our lives. When Jesus was always meant to be that hero, and he is the one we can center our lives around and we won't self-destruct. And so, oh, it's just a wonderful thing. I think of Paul in the New Testament. I'm not on my notes anymore at all. I'm just totally away from them and just preaching. I think of Paul in the New Testament, how he said, I look back at how impressive my resume is. And his resume was top shelf. It was amazing. He says, you look at my past, people would go, wow. He says, I take all of that and I throw it in the garbage and now embrace what Christ has called me forward into. And I think that's something God wants to do with every person who, uh, who, like me, 
grew up very religious and sort of thought I was the good one. I can perform. I'll be God's best performer. No. I discovered my, the darkness of my own heart along the way and got discouraged. And then I looked back at the gospel again and got re-encouraged because I realized, oh, yeah, right. It's not about this guy who continually fails and flops and doesn't measure up. It's about that one, Jesus, who went to the cross on my behalf. And I'm trusting in what he did, not in what I've done. And I'm looking to him. I'm fixing my eyes on him, and I'm getting encouraged instead of fixing my eyes on me and getting discouraged. And now the beauty of it all is that he wants to live his life through me. Which is great because he can do a lot of stuff I can't do. Every time I've cried out, I can't forgive. I realize, oh, but you can. Every time I've cried out, I can't love. Oh, but you're good. Oh, you're so good at that. And he says, I want to love, live my life through you. Hey, you stand. Let's stand together.